Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Quick note before we begin, the Finding Genius Foundation, as part of the Finding Genius Podcast, has recently completed a book about understanding viruses. So the creation of this book was to interview 100 virologists, ask them a lot of deep, difficult questions, take the most difficult questions, and then re-interview the top 25 or so and ask them the hardest questions I could think of. And we compiled that all into a book. So you'll see question and four or five experts' answers. Question, four or five experts' answers. There's about 30 questions in the book. I think it's a great read for the layperson and for the researcher. talks about a lot of speculation in the world of viruses, such as are they alive or not, and why is it important? Uh, Why do viruses go latent or hidden or ineffective or sit in a person or an animal or another creature for weeks, months, years? and then suddenly become virulent and affect that person. Uh, so there's a lot of really provocative questions in the book. It's now on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon and type in Finding Genius, you'll see the book on viruses. It's also on Kindle. The Audible version is in production and should be ready in approximately a month. But if you want to go and order it now, uh, you can do so again by going to Amazon or Kindle or go, go to findinggeniusfoundation.org and go to Publications. There's an opportunity as well to get the transcripts of all the interviews and to hear the original interviews themselves. If we had put them all together, the book would be about a thousand pages, but we condensed them down to make it juicy and concise and tight and very interesting. So I hope you'll check out the book. Uh, we're now working on one about cancer, but this is going to be our goal is uh, three times a year to come out with these masterclass books that I think will inspire new scientific research, and I hope you'll check it out. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have a returning guest, Dr. Bill McGraw. We talked last time about mercury. He's, uh, he's an expert on mercury and how it gets into people's bodies and you know the pathologies it creates. But he also has a, um, well, I don't know, I don't want to call it a hobby. I'm sure it's a lot more advanced than that, but he's been doing aquaponics for quite a while. Aquaponics seems to be the, the marriage of cultivating fish and raising them and also caring for plants in the same you know, combined environment, but we'll get into that. So, Bill, thanks for coming back. Thanks for having me, Richard. Yeah, so tell me, how did you get interested in aquaponics? Were you just growing plants first? I actually have a PhD in aquaculture from Auburn University, Alabama. I finished that up in 2000, and I went okay. to work at Harbor Branch and then all around the world for, for the next 25 years in five countries. Okay, so how I got involved in aquaponics was I've been regularly growing shrimp now for 25 years in a whole bunch of different countries and different systems and so on. And so what happened is I eventually got into saltwater plants because shrimp like saltwater. And so I was able to grow uh, shrimp in systems using plants to clean the water. And of course, plants to absorb the nitrogen and take out some of the fine suspended solids. So this creates an ideal environment for shrimp to grow. And so I actually use the plants as a biofilter. Well, years before that, I actually experimented a little bit with aquaponics at Harvard Branch, and I knew all about it, read a lot of papers on it. And so I got more and more involved in doing research on aquaponics and started writing uh, some articles on it. And I got to interview the father of aquaponics himself, 
James Rancosi. That's Dr. James Rancosi. He graduated from Auburn University 20 years before I did. And so for 30 years, he worked on aquaponics systems and University of Virgin Islands and actually perfected the commercial system, which ran for... Good question. How, how did he get into it? So you said yeah. he's the father of it. Did he... Right, right. How did he figure gonna, it out? Okay, this, we're going to go back to the late 1970s. He's at Auburn University, and he's actually experimenting with different plants, growing them in tanks with fish. And so he used it sort of as a wetland to clean the water, and he was really the first person really to... I think to focus on PhD research, uh, looking at uh, aquaponics, well, the beginning of aquaponics. And then when he went to the University of Virgin Islands, of course, they don't have much rainfall. And so he was able to work on that uh, and push it forward to the point where he created commercials, which is not only scientifically valid, but very economically viable because it doesn't use expensive components, just tanks and plants and fish, just like he used at Auburn. And he was able to study this thing for decades and keep it going for decades in a commercial standpoint. And it was just very successful. He's, of course, retired now, living in, in Thailand. So having done that, it was great to just pick his brain on the finer points of some of the challenges of aquaponics, including some of the companies that are that are producing fish and plants through aquaponics. And, and one other thing is uh, I was just interviewed by a fellow who developed the Spooky2 software. John White is his name. And he wanted to know how you know aquaponics really worked and how people can grow uh, fish and plants on their own and have it have fish and plants available year round and that's aquaponics is a great way to do that so we did an hour-long interview and, and we put that up on youtube and it's available for anybody uh, who wants to learn more so there's a an article and a youtube video for anybody who wants to learn more and also i have a basics of aquaculture course and i focus a lot on aquaponics because it's just so, I think, uh, easy to get into in terms right. of capital, and it's just so well, let's, good let's, for let's people. Let's talk to people. You know, let's talk to people what it looks like, mm -hmm. what they see, and you know, what's a basic aquaponics setup look like. Yeah, uh, easy enough. Uh, you have to have a container to grow fish in, so that's going to be a tank of some sort. Okay, different containers you can use, and then you're going to put your fish in there, and you're going to feed them. And then you're going to take that water and put it through some sort of solids filter. And a solids filter can just be a tank where you're bringing water into and you're, you're not having much turbulence in there. You're just slowly, carefully flowing water into this tank and allowing solids to settle out. So this is what we call quiescent, the quiescent solids chamber and gravity pulls down the solids and the water that flows up through the tank is solids free. And then from there, we can bring it into an area where plants are, and that's typically a channel, a trough, or even maybe a PVC pipe. And we just basically have our plant roots in that water, and that water is flowing by the plants. Uh, the plant roots and the plant roots are absorbing nitrogen, phosphorus, and cleaning the water. And, of course, nitrogen is the toxic component for fish. So when you feed a fish, 70% of all the nitrogen that you that's in the feed is wasted into the water because the fish really don't have the ability to absorb all the nitrogen and the protein. So they waste a lot of it and that comes out as ammonia, nitrite, and then eventually it's a nitrate. Well, nitrate is the preferred nitrogen form for plants and they take it up into the, into the plant and take it out of the water and use it as a basically a fertilizer. So those are the three main components. There's one other system that's even easier than that. And that's just having fish in a tank. Of course, you have to have a tank to have your fish and you feed your fish. And then that water can actually go up into a gravel filter 
or sometimes they use clay clay balls and they push the water through that container and the gravel basically removes solids and then you just plant your plants directly in the gravel bed and the roots absorb the nitrogen and phosphorus from the water as the water drains down and then you just work that water back into your fish tank and that's how the system is very complementary. The plants go off the fish waste and uh, they clean the water and return the water back to the fish. And so it's, it has a number of uh, advantages that make it uh, an excellent option for anybody who wants to grow their own food. But you, you can't have fish and plants in the same big tank. You have to have a, a system that what circulates back and forth for the filter, right? Well, yes, if you, well, look, if we started off with the basics of it, you could take just roots of a philodendron or some sort of houseplant and rinse off the soil and then drop the roots inside an aquarium. And if your fish don't eat the roots, which is sometimes what happens because roots are actually very nutritious for fish and shrimp. And a lot of times they'll graze on them and just graze them down into nothing. But if they don't graze on them, you'll see that plant take off and and the roots will absorb that nitrogen and phosphorus waste and and they'll grow right out of your aquarius. So you can do that. However, as you add more fish and add more feed to feed the fish, you're going to get just a lot of solids and that's just fish waste. It could be some bacteria buildup. It could be uh, just waste that the fish produces over time and it'll accumulate at the bottom of the tank as solids. And that's something you don't want to have. You don't want to have areas of, of solids in the bottom of your tank. You want to get those out and put them into another tank or just remove them with a the net. So in the basics of it, a very light stocking density in a tank, you can have plants and fish in the same tank, but you're going to get a buildup of solids over time. And that's basically going to produce some toxic components such as hydrogen sulfide or if you're using freshwater methane and that's going to build up to the point where your fish are going to suffer so you have to take the solids out of the fish tank anyone who's ever had aquarium knows that solids get built up in the gravel and eventually you got to take them out you got to clean them or whatever before we continue i've been personally funding the finding genius podcast for four and a half years now which has led to 2700 plus interviews of clinicians researchers scientists ceos and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. And so the same sort of thing happens in aquaponics. you got to move that water out, put it into a tank. You can use other types of uh, – there's some screen filters. Or you can use bird netting, as one of my students uh, told me once. And as uh, that's actually in the Jim Rakosi design. You work the water into a quiescent tank, which is just – while pumping water into a tank down to the bottom and allowing that water to rise up and the solids settle out through gravity. And the water that comes out of that tank through the other side is basically for solids. And then he brings it into a chamber with bird netting. And the bird netting is just basically a way for the solids to attach to the plastic of the bird netting. It's kind of slow and the solids settle and attach to the bird netting. And then you pull that bird netting out and clean it and put it back. And then you can just wash those solids out on your regular traditional agricultural plants or your house plants or whatever. And that works very well as well. And so what do you do with the, uh, with the filtrate or the solids or the cake or whatever you want to call it as it, as it builds up, can anything be done with it? Can it be compressed and fed to someone or can it be used well, as fertilizer in the ground? Yeah. 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 Basically, 
basically what they do is they take it out and you could just siphon it off or pump it out onto your plants. It's great. Tomatoes love a rich soil. So you can pump it out tomatoes or even basil will love you for it in the soil. It makes a good uh, fertilizer, but that's about all I know that you can use that for that uh, solid. But, but you can use it for, you, you don't have to waste anything if you don't want to, right? Right. That's correct. It is a good okay. fertilizer. It, do, it will contain a lot of phosphorus, probably about 60 to 70% of the total phosphorus that's wasted from the fish feed. Again, the fish don't absorb all the phosphorus. It gets wasted in the water. A lot of it ends up in the, in the sediments, in the solids. So if you pump those solids out onto your tomatoes, your basil, or whatever plants are growing on the ground, regular soil, uh, they'll love you for it. They'll absorb that phosphorus right up. It's in a great use of it. What plants go well with what kind of creatures and which ones don't go well and why? Well, I would say that when, first off, when you're putting uh, an aquaponic system together, you want to look at temperature. So if you have tilapia, uh, you have to look at the fact that you're going to need pretty hot water, you know, 90 degrees Fahrenheit or 30 degrees centigrade, depending on what you use. And so you're going to want to have a, a plant that likes hotter temperatures. And that would be classically your basil would go very well. Uh, I've seen okra grown and so on. But basically, some of the uh, plants that do the best are lettuces, and that's some of the, the lettuces that can survive some of the hotter weather because tilapia seem to do really well in aquaponic systems. However, they use the other type of fish. They use trout and salmon in the Midwest, and they, they circulate that water through uh, some components that contain lettuce that doesn't mind the cold, uh, colder temperatures, and they probably have in a, in a greenhouse, as most aquaponic systems are, and the colder weather. And uh, you can, it's basically matching the fish uh, with the temperature requirements that they have with the plant temperature requirements that they have. And so there's a lot of different combinations. I mean, there's a whole uh, list of different types of plants. And they can say you can just about grow any type of plant that you want in an aquaponic system. And, uh, you know, I'd like to go over the advantages, if I could, compared to aquaponics versus soil agriculture. Yeah, uh, yeah, go ahead. Okay, I, just wanted so, to, I just wanted to know, again, like, you know, do you grow shrimp with tomatoes? And, you know, no, how do you match okay. the plant with you yeah. know, the, the creature? Yeah. Right. So if you're growing any, anything that requires salt water, then you basically have to salt water tolerant plant. And that's going to be something like salicornia does very well. And there's also a couple of other ones. Purslane, I think, is, a, is the common name of another one that I used. And of course, the salicornia is edible. I wouldn't say it's something you're going to want to eat every day. It's more of a garnish. But you can eat it. Uh, it's full of minerals. You can feed it to your to your livestock or whatever. Uh, anything that would eat uh, some type of plant and enjoy it. Goat or whatever would it would really relish the the salicornia, and you can harvest about a kilogram per square meter of growing area, so that grows well. So if you have a saltwater fish or saltwater shrimp, then you need a saltwater tolerant plant because most plants just won't tolerate salt in in uh, in the water. Okay, so the advantages of aquaponics: first off, you can grow fresh organic vegetables and fish year round meaning that the plants always have access to the water. And if you stagger production, meaning that you're going to want to plant every week or two weeks, then you're going to have uh, plants that are regularly available for harvest to eat all year round. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. And it uses 10% of the water usage compared to soil agriculture. As I mentioned, Universal Virgin Islands didn't have a lot of water, not a lot of rainfall. So they loved aquaponics because it only uses 10% of the total fresh water requirement. And there's no need for interorganic fertilizer. The fish produce waste, the plants absorb it. It's incredibly complimentary. There's low electricity consumption, about a kilowatt per 300 square meters of growing area. That's not a lot. I mean, if you're growing something like shrimp, very intensively, it's far more nuts. Okay, faster growth of plants, absolutely, in aquaponic systems. There's quicker harvest because the plants just have access to the nutrient water 
all 24 hours a day and they're always growing. There's no weeds. You know, there's hardly any weeds in that, that'll grow in water like that. And they're easy to take care of as you're using raft culture. The plants uh, take up all the area and there's, there's no weeds. There's no weeds. So there's no soil borne pests or disease. Uh, most uh, pests, insect pests, have a larval form that grows in soil, and there's no biological filter. Uh, biological filters for aquaculture, such as the Calvinist meteor, your propeller, biowasp filters, and all that, sand filters, those are one of the most expensive components of aquaculture and intensive uh, recirculating systems, so that's a big advantage. And then, as, that, as I mentioned before, there's just about an unlimited number of species of plants. Uh, plants just absolutely love uh, to grow nutrient-rich water, ask a person who's growing plants in hydroponic systems. Very similar. The only difference is they have a nutrient tank, and we have a tank full of fish that are producing a nutrient solution. So kind of very, very similar, very similar, except we have solids does, um, to contend with. Does this make the fish and the plants more stable? Or, you know, what happens if the system gets perturbed? Like, you know, I'm sure a lot of listeners have had their own fish tank growing up, or they do now, and all of a sudden there's snails or all of a sudden it turned green and the fish were dead, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Yeah, so you always have to have aeration for your fish. That's one thing. Probably most tanks that are feeding a lot, remember your aeration requirements are based on feed amounts, not on biomass. So as you're feeding more and more, you need to pay attention that you have enough aeration. Well, the easiest way to measure the amounts of aeration is just by a dissolved oxygen meter and measure it. And you want to keep it above four parts per million or milligrams per liter, as we like to say. So that's one thing. You absolutely have to have constant, continual aeration for your fish. And you're going to want to have a backup alarm system if the power goes out. There's a beep that goes off, wakes you up, make sure that your fish have aeration. And there's more expensive computer-controlled aeration systems, which will actually measure the dissolved oxygen for you and then turn an extra aerator on if you need it. But that's a bit expensive. Also, your plant roots have to have aeration. You know, these plants are an aerobic creature or an aerobic species, and they the, the roots really have to have a certain amount of air. So you have to maintain good levels of oxygen in your tanks where you're growing your plants, so they're not going to grow very well or be happy. And one of the ways you do that is make sure you're not getting solids build up in the tanks where you're growing your plants because those solids absorb oxygen. The more solids you have, the less oxygen you have and so on. So you want to make sure you have air stones or whatever where you're growing your plants so you can mix that water up. Pass those solids into some type of filter. You know, just a regular tank is good enough. If it's quiescent, in other words, there's no turbulence, you just trickle the water into the tank and allow solids to settle out and then just allow it to overflow back into your fish tank. And that's about it. You know, that's how it works. The recirculation, I mean, are there certain parameters you need to watch? You know, can you recirculate too fast, too much? Mm-hmm. I guess yeah. if we did that, the solids wouldn't settle out. I mean, right. you know, um, settlement, uh, you know, the, the plants that are essentially uh, there in a hydroponic environment, are you doing like flood and drain? You know, is well, it you- just continuous flow through the plants? Like what's, what's an ideal system for the plants mm-hmm. themselves? Yeah, uh, typically for drain, uh, flow, you know, fill and drain in a system that contains gravel, that's something that's just going to flow slowly over time. Uh, there are some engineering uh, parameters uh, that you like to you need to follow. Uh, it's generally about 0.25 pounds of fish per gallon. The fish tank volume to plant tank volume is about anywhere from one to two, or if you're looking at surface area, uh, closer to 23 to one. And so that's the plant. That's actually the plants to the fish uh, growing area. Now, eighty percent. If you're in a commercial aquaponic system, eighty percent of your total system 
uh, the revenue is going to come from your plants. And the same thing can be said about the growing area. It, typically, 80% of your growing area is going to be for plants and 20% for your fish. Uh, you're going to want to flow that water through uh, at well enough so you settle, settle your solids and so that the plants get uh, access to that water to remove nitrate. And if you want to know what your nitrates are, wow, you can buy a test kit that's probably about six or eight bucks and measure the nitrates. So the water coming back from the plant area back into the fish tank should be lower in nitrates than what it is in your fish tank. And if your nitrates get upwards of 200 milligrams per liter, well, you probably need to add more plants and make sure you have sufficient plant area to have the sufficient amount of roots that's going to absorb uh, the nitrates. Uh, your nitrogen is really the only toxic component that you have unless you have solids settling in your, your tank or your, or your fish tank or your plant area. So it's really flowing it through to the point where you're settling solids. You don't want to really rush that water through your sediment tank or you won't get solid settling. And the easy way to look at that is just look at the color of the water. The water coming in is probably darker color. It contains solids. You can just take a glass dip it in that tank, and then allow the solids to settle out over about 30 minutes. And this is known as settable solids. And you can actually measure that with something called an Imhoff cone. Okay, and that's just the solid settling out. And there's a little meter there. And you look at a little scale and you say, oh, okay, two milliliters per liter settable solids. So that's a little more technical than what most people get into, but that's a good way to measure solids. And there's actually electronic meters where you can measure your suspended solids. And these are the smaller, finer solids in the water uh, that don't settle out as easy, as easy as the larger solids that settle out in your sedimentation tank. And this is what we use. That, that's when we use the uh, bird netting, uh, which actually settles out the finer solids. Does that make sense? So, yeah. Why, why in particular did you decide to grow shrimp? I guess besides because they're delicious, but Mm -hmm. like, you know, why Why do this? And uh, is it just a commercial enterprise for you? Or is there uh -huh. something about the shrimp that's really interesting? Well, yeah, geez, I started studying shrimp at Auburn University in 1996 for my PhD. And I grew shrimp in line ponds. And uh, that was a whole bunch of different work I did in research, looking at aeration levels, the amount of electricity you need to keep your shrimp alive, and looking at aerator types and the dissolved oxygen in ponds growing shrimp. And so that was the work I did in support of the shrimp industry. Uh, there's shrimp grown in probably every country you can possibly imagine now. It's worth billions, absolute, probably more than $10 billion a year in shrimp is produced. Probably $1 or $2 billion a year is lost through disease. And the reason for that, simply put, is because of lack of biosecurity. So what happens is uh, shrimp viruses or shrimp bacteria, shrimp bacteria that can harm shrimp, uh, travel around the world a lot like uh, the flu virus or, say, the coronavirus or whatever you'd like to say. And it travels around the world and causes all kinds of shrimp mortalities. That's why biosecurity is super important if you want to be sustainable in aquaculture or aquaponics. So let's say I was to bring in some tilapia fingerlings from a hatchery and it contained a bad bacteria. Uh, it can kill all of your fish. I recently brought, bought a thousand tilapia from a local hatchery, brought it into a tank, and 600 of the tilapia died within the first two weeks. And that was from a bad bacterial infection. So a lot of the hatcheries, in fact, most all of them in Panama are full of disease. And that's a bacteria in the shrimp environment. It's a vibrial bacteria. It's called early mortality syndrome. I just published an article on thefishsite.com for that, one of the biggest sites in the world for aquaculture. And that's just basically kill 95% of the total uh, shrimp in your culture system and tilapia die from bacteria such as streptococcus, same sort of bacteria 
that can harm people, although you can't get infected normally uh, from that bacteria. It's specific for fish and shrimp and so on only. So biosecurity. Biosecurity is having a totally enclosed system, meaning that you're not going to bring in any plants or, or any animals. You're going to spawn your own fish. You produce your own seedlings and then everything closed and contained and barred from any traffic, which means you're not going to be bringing in people for tours and you're going to have your own special feeds delivered that's totally free of disease. And you're not going to bring in anything from the outside that's alive and potentially a source of disease introduction. And that works very well. I have never had any disease for the first 25 years of my aquaculture production, different research systems I've worked on in five different countries. Only this past couple of months is where the hatcheries of Panama really just deteriorated horribly. And I don't know why that is specifically, but they're just producing diseased animals all over the place. And you just can't get a hold of animals that are free of disease now. So all this bad bacteria is spreading all through the shrimp industry all over the world. And people are having all kinds of problems and these systems are failing left and right. And it causes several billion dollars worth destruction to crops uh, in the shrimp aquaculture industry every year. And that's because of the bad bacteria Vibrio. And I interviewed the pathology expert, Arizona University, who's the best in the world at at, uh, shrimp disease. And he told me they have no idea where this gene that causes this toxin came from that produces all this bad toxin that just kills so many shrimp. I guess that's a long story. Maybe an opportunity for another podcast. When someone buys farm-raised shrimp or farm-raised anything, how bad could it be what they're getting? I mean, like, what do these systems look like, you know, that are responsible for the majority of farmed, you know, fish and, and crustaceans and everything? Do you yeah, know much about them? Oh, gosh, yeah. I know everything about aquaculture. I've been studying it for over 25 years, probably 30 years. So most uh, 95%, probably even more, maybe even more of that, are, uh, of shrimp are grown in ponds, outdoor ponds. And they're just not biosecure. So how shrimp gets, tra- how disease for shrimp gets traveled around from pond to pond is that they maintain water quality by using water exchange. So as the water you know, quality basically deteriorates in your shrimp pond, you're going to want to get rid of that bad water and bring in fresh water from the ocean or whatever, a stream if you're growing freshwater uh, fish. And what happens is as that water is flowing into that pond, it often brings infected tissue. Just like the coronavirus, if somebody has the coronavirus and they sneeze on you, you might get a virus. Okay, well, it's the same thing for shrimp and fish. If you're going to bring in infected host tissue for a virus, there's a potential you're going to bring in that disease because someone else is exchanging water to keep their water quality good. You see, so as one person's exchanging, letting out water, another person's bringing in water from somewhere else, perhaps down the stream or or, or downstream or perhaps uh, further along the coast. And that person brings in that water and it can't contain disease and it just spreads like wildfire. Uh, I had, I brought in disease shrimp into one of my farms that I had just went through the whole farm and killed about 95% of everything I had for the first time. And that is because I've really become reliable on the, the, the hatcheries of Panama to provide disease-free uh, post larvae. And they have for eight years straight. I never had a problem with disease and they were labeled specific pathogen-free which is a status that you you should strive to achieve when you're a, a hatchery manager. And that basically means that for several generations, all of your stock and your, and your post larva, your small fish fingerlings that you've been growing uh, have been tested and they're disease free and you're totally disease free hatchery and you're biosecure. And that's a big status symbol for aquaculture. And if you lose it, like Panama has done, in a very horrific manner, uh, that's very hard to get back. It takes years and years to go through that process again to prove that you're disease-free over several generations, then you get a certificate. But Panama may never 
get that certification again because they've basically done the big faux pas, the big violation, and that is they've they've just eliminated the opportunity to maintain biosecurity by bringing in some sort of disease broodstock, and then that spread through the, all the hatcheries of Panama. So the lack of biosecurity is what's created this problem, and they just lost their SPF status. And it'll take years and years and years, maybe a decade, to get it back. Can you filter the inlet? water used in any of these hatcheries or is that impossible no you absolutely can't filter the incoming water filter out that infected tissue but more likely if you're using small amounts you're going to use chlorine and you're going to chlorinate the water up to 40 parts per million and that's going to kill all the bad bacteria and viruses after you filter out all the solids because the, the sometimes the chlorine will actually react with organic matter i mean we basically use chlorine to to clean fresh water a lot of uh, freshwater domestic sources of water are, are uh, have chlorine in them. And that's basically to remove all the potential pathogens. If you don't have chlorinated water, then all your people are going to have parasites. Now, Panama is a classic example. They don't have chlorinated water. And so what happens is everybody has parasites here unless you're filtering down to about 0.1 microns, which is going to filter out uh, most of all the bad, the bad bacteria and the bad parasites. The protozoan parasites here are rampant. And just about everybody has a parasite in Panama unless you're strict about not drinking water that hasn't been filtered down to 0.1 micron. So to answer your question quickly, yeah, you're going to use chlorine for the incoming water. Then you're going to aerate for 48 hours to get rid of the chlorine as a gas. Or you can actually use vitamin C to reduce the chlorine residual in that water before you use it, bring it into your tanks and whatever. So what's, um, who should do aquaponics and who shouldn't? You know, is it a hobby type thing or is it really, you know, only a serious business? And, yeah. you know, what's your recommendations? Okay, wow. Anybody who wants to have fresh uh, food available year round can do it. If you're going to say you're in the United States and you're, say, uh, have a winter, and they all do, of course. And so someplace like Alabama would typically have six months out of the year, you're going to need heat to grow your tilapia and your vegetables. So that, that's it. You have to take that into consideration. Certain amount of energy requirements that you have to have for heat. Well, if you're living in Southern Florida, you probably don't need any uh, electrical input for heat. But if you're living in, say, Vermont, then you're going to need a lot of heat to maintain uh, water conditions so that the water's warm enough so you don't kill your fish. Maybe you can grow trout and lettuce like they do out in the Midwest. You can look that up online. Or you can do tilapia up there, but you're going to need a certain amount of energy input for heat. So that is a consideration. But you'll be surprised to find how creative people can be using different tanks and pumps. And if you want to just try it out, well, why not just get an aquarium full of freshwater fish and drop some roots from a philodendron like I did uh, 40 years ago when I was a kid and watch that plant grow and absorb nitrogen phosphorus. Or you can try other plants and then try a lettuce. You know, rinse off uh, the soil from the lettuce uh, roots and just drop it into your tank and see what happens. Chances are that the fish will eat the roots because they're very nutritious. But you can, anybody like that can, can, can get into that. Or you can get into a larger systems as you get more familiar. And eventually you can get into commercial production. They do at the University of Virgin Islands. They do commercial production. And they also do commercial production in the Midwest. You can look that up online. Different aquaponic systems have gone commercial. The UVI system is pretty amazing. And I cover that in my basics of aquaculture course. I cover a lot of aquaponics. In particular, the commercial system at the university developed at the University of Virgin Islands. Because that's an amazing one that just used tanks and pumps and water. It doesn't use expensive uh, equipment. And it just used a sedimentation tank to settle the solids and bird netting to collect the finer solids. And that's all they use for their aquaponics. And it goes decades without having to make any adjustments to the water, except for adding minor amounts of potassium 
and calcium in that hydroxide form, maintaining the pH at seven, and the thing just runs like a, like a clock. I mean, it just regularly produces plants, regularly produces fish, and that's it. What are, what are some of the um, cycles or changes that are observed in any aquaponics system? What kind of yeah. cycling will you see? What kind of things uh-huh. do you have to contend with? Well, eventually what happens through nitrification is ammonia is turned into nitrite and it's a nitrate. It produces a certain amount of acidity. So the pH will drop. So you have to measure the pH and keep it around seven, according to Dr. Jim Ricosi. And so uh, you do that by adding hydroxides. Now you want to add hydroxides in the potassium hydroxide and calcium hydroxide form because you're going to need potassium and calcium regular additions of it because the, the, the plants have a tendency to absorb the calcium and potassium over time. And you have to add that in hydroxide form and you can get potassium and, and, and calcium hydroxide just about anywhere, pure forms of that. And you add small amounts just to raise your pH to seven. And you can just experiment with going like a tablespoon or a teaspoon per per 10 gallons or something like that, and watch your pH slowly creep back up to seven. And when a pH is seven, the plants have access to the, the mineral input, and basically that's what keeps that cycle humming. So potassium and calcium are some things you're going to want to measure over time. And as Dr. Jim says, you don't even measure, have to measure that over time. You know, well, every such and such amount of time, I need to add X amount of potassium hydroxide. And the following X amount of time, you're going to add calcium hydroxide. And he says it's so regular that they didn't even bother measuring anything in the tanks over time. They just knew that it was going to be this and going to be that. And you added this and added that. And that's all they had to do. So it's incredibly reliable over time once you get the hang of it. Uh, again, are there, is there any major cycling that goes on? Like, let's say um, you're not filtering the solids quite right. What would you uh-huh. notice on the plant side or on the fish side? Or- Right. Let's say, so, you know, one or more parameters go off. Like, what would you notice as a sign of worry? Yeah, you'd want to take a look at your plant roots. They can't have any solids collecting on them because solids are sticky and they'll collect your plant roots. It will suffocate them and die. So if you see plants growing very poorly, uh, then you want to check your roots. Uh, you want to keep your solids down to a certain amount. Tilapia are incredibly hardy, and they'll eat some of the solids that just grow in the water. The bacterial aggregates, they'll, they'll uh, crop on those or just sort of like uh, – Geez, I don't know. Maybe you can compare it to a deer browsing or brazing or chickens that continually graze and browse on things. They will continually graze on whatever's in the water, and then you need to feed them uh, once or twice a day, and then they'll produce the waste and so on. So you have to clean your water. You can't have too many solids in it. You want to measure your ammonia. Make sure that's good. Nitrite turns into nitrate. You want to keep your nitrate at least probably around 50 milligrams per liter. And if you follow the engineering guidelines, you shouldn't have any problem with plants absorbing the nitrogen from the water. You know, if you can, there is potentially may see a phosphorus deficiency. You can get pictures online. You'll see what a phosphorus deficiency looks like in a plant. Sometimes it'll turn purple, the plant, and that's an indication it needs phosphorus. You can apply phosphorus as a, through an aerial application, just spray it on. That'll work. Sometimes you have that with certain plant species. Uh, normally you can add a certain amount of chelated iron every couple of weeks. You can measure iron in water. That's not too difficult at all. What else? You need to maintain uh, constant temperature because your fish will grow at an optimum temperature, and so will your plants if it's too cold. Your fish aren't going to grow. Your plants aren't going to grow. So you want to maintain optimum temperature in terms of that. Uh, you know, if you look in, if you're if you've grown fish in a tank, you know if your water gets dirty, it gets full of waste nitrogen, your fish are going to look rough. So if you take a look at your fish, they should look healthy and vibrant. They should elicit a feed response. And what is your feed response? Well, it's just like calling kids for dinner. They they come a running if they're if they're healthy kids and they have a good appetite, then they come a running for dinner. Well, as you throw that feed in the water, your tilapia should come right up and, and munch away on it. And if they're not, 
the first indication of disease very well likely, likely may be a lack of appetite, a lack of feed response. But normally when you throw that feed in there, they go splashing up at the surface and they're going to eat everything. And you can feed them just as, as much as they'll eat. And that's called feed to satiation uh, mm. over time. And so you may get the hang of that. Oh, Mike's lap, you'll eat exactly one cup. Or one and a half cups, and that's just fine. Isn't there always one greedy tilapia, or greedy one that wants to eat everything until it explodes? Okay, so to prevent that, what you want to do is stock uh, fish that all, are all the same size. Or you could get all male tilapia. And that's a simple thing. I worked on it back in 96, where if you feed tilapia fry, okay, tiny fish of a couple grams, uh, methyl testosterone for about 10 days, they'll all turn into males. And there's no residual hormones or anything. This is just turning off the switch at a certain small size, and then they'll all just grow uh, as they would males. And there's no residual, you know, anything left over for the fish when you eat it. It's just turning off a certain marker at a certain size for that fish when it's deciding whether it's going to be male or female. And so that's one way. The other way is just to keep your temperature up to 32 degrees when you're producing tilapia fingerlings, and most all of them will turn into male. And you can sex them at a certain small size at probably 100 50 or 100 grams, you can sex your tilapia and take out all the males and maybe give away all the females or whatever. And so you want to have fish of all the same size so everybody gets a chance to eat. And if you have large fish, well, maybe you can harvest that large fish and allows the other smaller fish to grow and grow to a larger size, and then you can harvest that too. So that's a good way to do it. And of course, you always want to stagger production. The best way to do that is have several tanks connected together. And so you want to have one fish stocked and then another fish maybe six weeks later stocked and another fish six weeks later. The easy way to determine that, if you're going to grow a tilapia in, say, three months' time, then you have three tanks. You just stock every month and you harvest a tank every month. That's the easiest way to do that. Staggering production so you have everything. You have something available to eat at all times of the year. Hey, Phil, I mean, sorry, Bill, I lost you for a second. I'm sorry. Can you just repeat the last 30 seconds and we'll we'll edit it back in? Okay. Yeah. um, As far as staggering production goes, if you want to have fish and plants available year round, you just have to multi-stock and multi-harvest. So let's say it takes three months to grow tilapia. Well, then it would be good to have three tanks and then stock once a month. And, you know, you'll have, you'll be stocking once every month and you'll be harvesting once every month. And so that's a good way to stagger production to have a constant input of nitrogen. Uh, let's say you just had one tank and you started off a very small amount of feed input and then you increase the feed input as the fish grow because you can feed at 5% of biomass or you can feed ad libitum or to satiation, all that they'll eat, right? Until they're safe satiated, right? Uh, And so uh, over time, you can build up feed and you'll have higher nitrogen. Well, that means that you eventually have too much nitrite for the system. So the best way to do it is to multi-stock and multi-harvest. You're adding fingerlings ready uh, uh, normally every so often, every month, and then you're harvesting tilapia every month. So multi-stock, multi-harvest, several different sizes. And the easiest way to do that is to keep them the same size in different tanks. Like connect three tanks together. That's the best way to do it. Yeah, last question. I know in some environments you can put in mycorrhizae, you know, like fungi, to help the plant growth. Uh-huh. What about in aquaponics? Do uh, Are there any fungi that can live in the water or no? Oh, geez, yeah. A lot of bacteria and fungi live in the water normally. But what happens over time is the system develops a very special relationship between the plants and animals. And they say there's sort of some sort of health component when a system matures over time and that there's a special community of bacteria and fungi that uh, is very complementary for the fish and the plants. 
and they say that there's some sort of growth components that they're not quite the quite extremely familiar with in terms of the research. So over time, for a couple of months after you're growing fish and plants together in the same system, they, they're very so complementary that the plants just to be uh, grow to be super healthy. And there is sort of sort of growth components that make these plants grow a lot faster, twice as fast as they would grow in soils. So they do develop complex components of bacteria and fungi in the roots, which help the plant absorb the nitrogen and phosphorus from the water. So absolutely, there is definitely uh, a bacterial and uh, fungal community in the water. Well, very good. Well, Bill, what's the best way for people to start learning about aquaponics and dip their toe in the water where a tilapia <laughs> will bite it? Just right. That's funny. Okay. So yeah, the best way to get a hold of me is to go to my site, which is newaquatechpanama.com. And then you'll see uh, a link for my course, Basics of Aquaculture, which I teach probably once every three months. I have a course going on right now. Two classes have gone by and, the, and my students are really into it. In fact, we always go over the hour because everybody's so excited to learn and so many questions. And I just love that. I love that excitement and enthusiasm of the students because it really makes it worthwhile for me knowing that I'm passing on knowledge that's going to be used and appreciated. That's always helps when you're a teacher. So yeah, go to my website or just look up Dr. Bill McGraw, uh, Panama, and you'll find all these links. I've published a hundred articles online in science, scientific journals and the fishsite.com and animals 24 seven and, and so on and so on. There's just a ton of sites I publish on, on whales and mercury and fish and aquaponics and shrimp and, mineral deficiencies and you know I work as a naturopathic doctor as well so I see clients five days a week and heal them from chronic disease a lot has to do with uh, mineral deficiencies and using rife technology and that's how I got in touch with John White who's the developer of the spooky two software so that that was all Excellent. and it's a, just a blast it's very fulfilling to to heal people from chronic disease I really enjoy that as well okay well Bill thank you again for coming I really appreciate it well thanks very much uh, for having me Richard I look forward to the next one if you like this podcast please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.